Acts chapter 12, verse 25, through chapter 13, verse 3. This section marks a turning point in the book of Acts. The church, of course, began in Jerusalem, where it was comprised of Jewish believers. And from there, in confirmation of Jesus' words, the gospel spread to Samaria, where the Samaritans, who had Jewish blood yet were not considered Jews, also believed and were received into the church. We then saw Peter preach the gospel to the Gentile Cornelius, and many in his household along with him were added to the church. And the gospel is now poised to go to the ends of the earth. Saul, or Paul, will dominate the book of Acts from here to the end. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, and it is among the Gentiles that the church will begin to take root. And so, finding ourselves at this turning point in the book of Acts, allow me to read Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. This is the word of the Lord. So we recall at the end of chapter 11, Barnabas and Saul went to Jerusalem from Antioch. The purpose of that trip was to take relief funds that had been collected by the church to the believers in Jerusalem who were suffering hunger due to a famine who had fallen or which had fallen over that whole region. And having completed that task, Barnabas and Saul now returned to the church at Antioch. And the text notes in verse 25 that a young man named John Mark had gone along with them. He was first introduced to us back in chapter 12 as the son of Mary, and she was the one in whose house the believers had gathered to pray for Peter's release from prison. He's also the cousin of Barnabas, and John Mark will re-enter the narrative at several future points. Luke, the writer of Acts, is now taking the opportunity to introduce him again as a helper in the ministry. As we look at verse 1 of chapter 13, we see diversity as divine purpose. Our focus has now been brought back to the church at Antioch. We learned earlier that, that it's composed of Jews and non-Jews. Antioch was a large cosmopolitan city containing all of the trappings of an urban area, including rampant uh, sexual practices that were associated with the local pagan fertility worship. The city also had a reputation for wild living, uh, wild living, that is, for loose morals. In other words, it was an ideal place for the church to be a witness. And we're given here, in verse 1, a list of five men who are referred to as prophets and teachers. And the text does not say which ones were the prophets and which ones were the teachers. It's very possible that some, if not all of them, had both teaching abilities and prophetic gifts. 
So what is the difference between a prophet and a teacher? Simply put, a teacher provides basic information for Christian living. At this point in the church, before there was a completed New Testament, keep in mind there's no New Testament yet, a teacher would have expounded the Old Testament and communicated the traditions concerning the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. An able teacher applied these truths to practical Christian living. So a teaching ministry is an ongoing or sustained ministry in the church. Then we have a prophet. Well, a prophet in the New Testament, as we've considered before, speaks in response to the distinct and the direct moving of the Holy Spirit. A prophet spoke spontaneously into the moment. So unlike a teacher, unlike a teacher who unlocks and expounds the word of God over time, a prophet receives uh, receives momentary and special guidance from the Lord. One commentator writes, if the church was to be responsible and creative, it needed both. That is both teachers and prophets. The teachers in a church, they instill our duty to follow the word of God. The prophets give us a sense of what the Lord is speaking into a particular situation. As the Lord has given the church teachers and prophets, both are obviously necessary for the church to function as God intends. We have a man like Saul. Saul was both a teacher and a prophet. And all five of these men together, with their combined teaching and prophetical gifts, represented the leadership of the church in Antioch. And they also give us an idea of the ethnic and the cultural diversity of the church there. Barnabas was a Jew, originally from Cyprus. But he was a long-standing and respected member of the church in Jerusalem. Now the Lord's taken him to Antioch. Simeon, the next person listed, has a Jewish name, and he was called Niger. This word, Niger, it means black or dark complexion. So this information is given to us, presumably, to tell us that Simeon was from northern Africa. Then we have Lucian. He was from Cyrene, was probably one of the founding members of the church in Antioch. We read back in Acts 11.20 that some men of Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next on the list is a man named Manaean. It's said about him that he had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Herod the Tetrarch, there's a lot of Herods going on in, in these, uh, these passages that we've been reading. Herod the Tetrarch was the son of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the king of the Jews at the time of the birth of Jesus. Herod the Tetrarch was also the father of Herod Agrippa, who was struck down by the Lord for not giving God the glory. We saw that last week in last week's passage. This Herod, today, in our text, Herod the Tetrarch, he was a governor during Jesus' earthly ministry. So the phrase brought up with him, Manane was brought up with him, means that he was a close, or he was an intimate boyhood friend of Herod. In all likelihood, he was a foster brother to him, meaning that he would have been brought up alongside of him in the palace. While Herod went on to be the one responsible for having John the Baptist beheaded, Manaean went on to be a leader in the church whose head is Jesus Christ, the one for whom John the Baptist prepared the way. So they took 
wildly different paths, Herod the Tetrarch and his boyhood friend, Manaen. And finally, we see Saul included among these five leaders at Antioch. And he, of course, was a well-educated Jew from the city of Tarsus who had spent considerable time in training as a rabbi in Jerusalem. Antioch was an ethnically and culturally diverse city. Why am I saying this? Well, it makes sense that the church would also be comprised of people from many different cultures and backgrounds. And uh, by the way, I don't like using the word race to refer to different ethnicities. We're all of one race. We're all from the human race. We have one ancestor. We just happen to have, we happen to have different skin tones as well as different cultures and backgrounds and life experiences. Ethnicity, I think, is a better word because it refers to common characteristics that are shared by a group of people. It's a broader term than describing just race. So from this diverse list of leaders in our text, notice that first of all, the church should never discriminate against anyone because of their ethnicity. I believe it's obvious that if Jesus Christ receives someone, then we as a church are obligated to receive them as well, regardless of their background, culture, color, social status, economic standing, or past reputation. Listen to 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven: God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. Guess what? You and me are on that list. We are the foolish. We're the weak. We're the based. We're the despised. That's why you needed Jesus. That is why you came to Jesus. And Jesus freely received you when you placed your faith in the work of salvation that he accomplished on your behalf. So if we've each been so freely received into the very body of Jesus Christ, surely we cannot refuse to receive other brothers and sisters because of differences in skin color or economic status or culture. And I don't think we would. I don't think we would. But having said that, in general, secondly, secondly, the people in any congregation will represent the location of that congregation. Let me tell you what I mean by that. This is what happened in Antioch. It was a multicultural, multi-ethnic city comprised of free men and slaves, rich and poor, religious Jews and irreligious Gentiles. People from every class and ethnicity responded to the gospel. Hence, the makeup of the church looked a lot like the makeup of the city. It's a cross-section of the city, which makes sense. It's the kind of diversity that you would expect in a church located in an international city like London or maybe uh, New York, specifically Manhattan, where you have a lot of different types, ethnicities coming together. At the same time, if you went to the Vietnamese section of New York City and attended the church, guess what? You would discover congregations that are primarily composed of Vietnamese people. New York is a huge city. Every neighborhood has multiple churches. And the closer knit the community is ethnically, the more that 
particular ethnicity will be represented in a particular local church. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. A congregation's makeup will represent the local community. Here at Salem, we largely share the same culture, social class, ethnicity. I can take you right down the road to another church where our brothers and sisters are, are worshiping Jesus. And they are largely made up of a different ethnicity, culture, social class than we are. They, like us, reflect their location and even their own preferences when it comes to worship styles. And there's nothing wrong with the differences between the two of us. Nothing wrong with it. There is something wrong and sinful if we treat someone differently who wants to join our fellowship because they are not like us. Diversity is a gift of God, and so it's good. It's good. But, and here's the third point. Thirdly, diversity should never be forced. Should never be forced. The church at Antioch represented all of the different types of believers drawn from a very diverse city. But it was not something that was manufactured. It's not like the, uh, not like the believers in Antioch looked around and said, we need more ethnic diversity here. We, we need more Romans or Cyrenes or Greeks or North Africans. We need more slaves. We need more rich folks. They didn't do that. What happened was is the gospel was preached in an ethnically and culturally diverse city. The Holy Spirit drew people from different classes and cultures and backgrounds. The diversity was not forced. It was God's doing. One of the reasons I point this out is because there is a problem in many churches today, and that is they're all, uh, there, there's all sorts of social pressure to force their congregations to become more diverse. I keep up with uh, a lot of, of the latest church trends, try to do that as a pastor, try to kind of get the pulse of what's going on in the wider Christian community. And what's going on is there are these seminars and these workshops on how to steer your congregation into more diversity. And, and you say, well, that sounds good. Well, what happens, what tends to happen is, to put it bluntly, it's these trainings on how to get more black folks into white churches or how to get more white folks into, into black churches or maybe how to get a few Hispanic people thrown in for good measure. And it's all for added diversity. And, and it's as if some churches feel like they have to prove in the wake of our culture that forces diversity in everything, from TV commercials to small businesses, it's as if some churches have to prove that the church really is diverse. Guess what? The church really is diverse. We don't have to prove that. The body of Christ is already made up of people from every tribe and nation and tongue and people. Not everyone quite yet, but a wide range of them. A wide range of them. When I worshiped with the congregation in Nigeria on Sunday morning, I was usually the only white American there, unless Patrick was with me. And that was okay. I was worshiping in a village church that didn't have any other white Americans. 
but they were obviously my brothers and my sisters. The global church is already diverse. So depending on the location of a congregation, it may be ethnically diverse or it may not be. The Lord desires diversity and he values it in his church, but we cannot force it. We cannot force it. And if we try, then it will be man's doing and not God's. It will not be a genuine move of the Spirit. Every local congregation, for the most part, will be an expression of the people who live in that immediate community. We don't have a wide range of economic, ethnic, or cultural diversity here. And that's okay. Anyone's welcome to this church. And I know they would be loved by you as soon as they, as they came in that back door. I have no doubt about that. And so may, may, the Lord, may the Lord bring people here who are different than us. That would be great. And he'll do it as we share the gospel, as we invite folks to church. But it's not our goal to force some artificial diversity upon our congregation. The Lord will bring whom he desires. And we'll welcome them with whole hearts. And we'll give thanks for it. Diversity has divine purpose. Verse 2, we see a setting apart for divine service. Setting apart for divine service. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, verse 2 begins, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, we have this word ministering, which actually just means serving. As the word was used in, in general society, it meant to do public work at one's own expense. So think volunteer work. Volunteer work involves what? A sacrifice of time, energy, sometimes even money, in order to serve. So as the word is used in the Old Testament, it almost always refers to the service of the priest in the temple. Even though the five teachers and prophets are listed off, according to some grammatical stuff that's going on here that I won't get into, it was probably the whole church that was gathered together. They were ministering to the Lord, or as I pointed out, serving the Lord. What does that look like? We know for sure that there was fasting involved. To fast is to abstain from food or drink or both in order to seek the Lord in a more focused way. Fasting demonstrates an urgent desire to seek God. You're willing to go without what your body craves physically in order to focus that craving spiritually on the Lord. For that reason, prayer and fasting, they always go hand in hand. And so we know that primarily the believers in Antioch had come together in order to serve the Lord through focused and urgent prayer and fasting. They gave their time and energy to the Lord, approaching Him in supplication, even as the priest approached the Lord in service at the temple. This kind of prayer and fasting, it ministers to God. It's an act of worship. The seeking heart. It's a worshiping heart. We call what we're doing here, right now, we call this what? A worship service. We do more than just sing. The whole time together is an act of worship, of service unto the Lord. Our congregational prayer time is worship. Our offering time is worship. Listening to the message is worship. All of it ministers to the Lord. All of it is offered unto Him. 
So we don't know exactly why the brothers and sisters in Antioch came together to urgently and fervently fast and pray. There must have been a prompting by the Holy Spirit to do so. Often when you feel a compulsion to pray, it's because the Holy Spirit is moving in you to do so. Do you respond to that when you feel that compulsion? Are you responding to it? Sometimes you'll be shown specifically what to pray for. You'll just have a burden for something specific. And that's what you should pray for. Other times, you're just moved to pray, and the Holy Spirit will intercede within you, praying the will of God on your behalf. That's Romans 8.26. So perhaps in this case, since the outcome was the choosing of two men for missionary service, the church felt compelled to pray specifically for God to raise up workers. But at the very least... There was an urgent desire to pray and to fast. And they did that. And they did so. And as they did so, the Lord spoke. It says, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. As a result of prayer and fasting, the Lord made clear his will. And that is the primary reason that you should consider fasting. If you've ever asked yourself, What's the value of fasting? Why should I fast? Well, when you need clarity in the Lord's will in a matter, focused prayer along with fasting can give you the breakthrough and the understanding that you are seeking. That's the primary purpose of fasting, seeking the Lord in a focused manner in order to get clear on his will in a particular situation. So let's notice, first of all, that it was God who called Barnabas and Saul. It was God who called them. I'm sure the congregation could have chosen some good candidates for missionary service. I'm sure they would have considered Barnabas and Saul. But it was not the congregation that made the decision. It was God. And he made his will known plainly. The Holy Spirit said. Pretty clear. We don't know how the Holy Spirit spoke. We do know that there are prophets in the church. So it's highly probable that one or several of them received a strong impression from the Spirit. At any rate, regardless of how they heard his voice, those gathered knew that God was calling out Barnabas and Saul. This is important. We, or when we are making decisions about positions to be held in the church, or evaluating people for different types of roles that need to be filled, we weigh their gifts and their abilities and their skills. This is something we should do. We don't want someone who's equipped as a prayer warrior also in a teaching capacity if they are not called to teach. We want them praying for the teacher. We don't want to thrust someone with the gift of helps who loves to serve in the background into a position of administration. There are people that thrive serving in the background, hidden away. Somebody comes to mind as I'm saying that. Somebody like that would rather use their gifts and skills and abilities to take food to, to shut-ins or maybe to clean the church. Some people love to clean, you know? Just examples of how we should pay attention to others and use what we can discern, uh, discern about them to evaluate where they might best serve within the church. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, having said that, we need to hear from the Holy Spirit. Though 
we can together, we can make evaluations about a person's gifts and abilities and skills. Only the Lord knows what he has called them to do. And we need to be sensitive and obedient to that call upon others' lives, upon each other's lives. I realize this case in our text is a little different because these are two men not being called to serve in the church, but called to be sent out by the church. But the principle remains. God calls, God confirms that calling, and we act as a church in response to the will of God. Secondly, Notice that Barnabas and Saul are set apart for a specific work. God has a plan for these two. Shocking, I know. He spent years preparing Saul and Barnabas for this next step. Saul, later to be known as Paul, he's going to soon supersede Barnabas in prominence in the text. Not before the Lord, just in what's going on and what God's doing. Saul has already been told that He is a chosen instrument to bear the name of Jesus before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. That was back in Acts chapter 9. This is the unleashing of that call. God has a very specific job for the two of them. It is to take the gospel to places the gospel has not yet been proclaimed. Namely, among the Gentiles to the west of Israel. This is a missionary calling. The Holy Spirit is calling you to do something specific. You. He's calling you to do something specific. Perhaps some of you have heard from the Lord what that specific call upon your life is. Maybe you've gotten a glimpse, like Saul, of what is to come. Perhaps you're still in a season of preparation before you will be unleashed to fulfill whatever the Lord has planned for you to do. And the call is different for each of us. But I guarantee you that the Holy Spirit's call upon your life will perfectly fit your skills, gifts, abilities, and experiences. God is a big God. He takes all that stuff and He puts it together perfectly. You will feel most alive when you are operating in that specific calling that God has designed for you and prepared you to step into. What is that for you? You might need the help of the church. Us, your brothers and sisters, praying with you, seeking the Lord beside you, that God's will might be made known. Saul, he already had a sense of what God was preparing him to do. He was simply waiting on the timing for it to happen. And as a result of the prayers and the fasting of God's people, the Holy Spirit said, go, now is the time. So seek God for that time in your life. If you're not already walking in that specific calling that God has for you, seek Him for that time, for that unleashing. I don't care how old you might be or how much you might feel there's no time for the Lord to lead you into something new, you might be surprised. He still has a plan for you, a plan that He desires to fulfill. So wait on the Holy Spirit. To set you apart. It's God's calling. God is the one who will do through you what he has called you to do. And he doesn't care whether you think it's very possible or not. He's a big God. He likes to do impossible things. Do you believe that? Thirdly, notice 
the church was losing two of her most promising leaders. That's easy to miss. Of course, we see the potential of Barnabas and Saul as missionaries. But think about the sacrifice it was to the church at Antioch. Two of their most gifted teachers and leaders are being sent away. That's hard to do. We should desire to see not only our church grow, but we should also desire to see other churches started as a result of our prayers and efforts. And the only way that happens is if we are willing to send out people from our midst. That means on one hand that we are losing a member or even members and their families. We would have to shrink in order to multiply. Our tendency in such a scenario would be to keep the best leaders and the best teachers, the ones with the most potential to ourselves. The problem is that's not what we see the Holy Spirit doing here. The Lord is sending out two of the most promising. The church is losing so that others might gain. This is sacrificial service. This requires a willingness to relinquish some of your own leadership in order for the gospel to go forth in other places and result in the establishment of other churches. Don't worry, I'm not getting ready to leave. But one of you might be. We'll see. See what the Lord does. Jesus commands that we pray for the Lord to raise up workers. For the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So let's not be surprised if we're praying that, as we should be, when God raises up some of our own and sends them away. Verse 3, we see ascending forth for divine mission. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. The Lord's made his will known, and the congregation responds. And once again, they sought the Lord with prayers and fasting. This time, it is not to discern God's will. They already know what God's will is. That's already been revealed. This time, the fasting and the praying is for the purpose of carrying out God's will. They're not focusing their prayers on seeking God for guidance, but on asking the Lord to fulfill His will through two missionaries. Neither the church in Antioch nor its leaders chose Barnabas or Saul for this ministry. The church simply confirmed the Holy Spirit's directive to set them apart for God's work. So it's important to understand the order of events here. First, God does the calling and God does the equipping. Then man acknowledges that which God is doing. First step, God. Second step, man. When a congregation or an association ordains a pastor to the work of the ministry, they are not giving him permission to minister. God's already given him permission. God has already set that individual aside. They are not conferring any authority because God has already spoken authoritatively about the individual. Ordination or commissioning or sending out are all different ways to describe the church's confirmation of an individual's calling from God. We recognize what God is already doing. However, if a person were to come to me or come to others in this church asking for the blessing 
of our congregation for a particular ministry they felt called to do. I would not just give that blessing without first inquiring a few things. Do we see this particular calling in operation already? Barnabas and Saul, they were already teaching. They were already sharing the gospel. They were already doing missionary work before God confirmed his call to the church. So if you feel like you've been called to do something particular for God's kingdom, which you have been, I hope you discovered that if you haven't discovered that already. If you feel like you've been called to do something particular for God's kingdom, are you already doing it? Are you already doing it? Because receiving the blessing of the church is not going to automatically cause you to start doing it. You should already be doing it. I have somebody that's young and comes to me and expresses interest in becoming a youth pastor, getting training for that. I would ask them, are you already discipling young people? Are you already spending time with young people in order to invest spiritually in their lives? Because getting the title of youth pastor, even getting the education and the training is not going to make you do something that you're not already doing. It's not going to cause you to begin to do something you're not already doing. If God has put a call in your life, you will be operating in that long before even the church possibly recognizes it. Another obvious question I would ask you, or I would ask is this, are you gifted with the skills and abilities in the area you propose to undertake? If you told me that you felt called to teaching the Bible to children in your neighborhood, but I noticed that you get easily flustered around rowdy children, I might wonder if you are discerning your call correctly. You might be. It's a good question. Because even then, I or others may miss what the Lord is doing in your life. We might not see the hidden gifts and the abilities the Lord has yet allowed to blossom, to come to the surface. So this is the most important question for you. Has the Holy Spirit set you aside? Has the Holy Spirit set you aside? Has the Holy Spirit placed that call upon your life? That's a question you have to answer. And if he has done that, then he will confirm to you and to those with whom you fellowship. When I returned to the States after doing mission work in Belize for seven years, my coworker Patrick and I we began to prepare to go to Nigeria. We were in the States, I think, for about eight months during that time. But because we'd been out of the country for so long, we, uh, we didn't have a home church. But during that transition time in 2007, we found one in Birmingham. And the congregation, they, they quickly embraced us. They recognized God's call on our lives. They heard what we'd done. They heard what we envisioned to do in Nigeria. And so when it was time for us to leave to go to Nigeria, the pastor and the elders called for the whole congregation to come around us. And those that could reach us, they, they laid their hands on us and they prayed for our mission, asking God to, to mightily use us while sending us forth with their blessing. Why did they do that? Well, they did that because of what we read here in verse 3. Laying on of hands. Laying on of hands. Did not qualify did not qualify Barnabas and Saul, but like it did with, with Patrick and me, the laying on of hands by brothers and sisters was a congregational recognition 
of a divine calling that was already there. It expressed their fellowship with us and the text that expressed their fellowship, their endorsement, their agreement with the Holy Spirit's call upon the mission of Barnabas and Saul. Laying on of hands, it's symbolic. It's a physical act. Touch is powerful. Touch is affirming. There's a difference between simply praying with someone and praying with someone with a hand on their shoulder when that's appropriate. Touch is obviously not necessary in order for prayer to be effective, but it is a corporate physical expression of affirmation. In the Old Testament, an Israelite would lay hands on an animal before making a sacrifice of that animal. Basically, symbolically conferring his guilt to that animal, a symbolic act. Genesis 48, Jacob blessed two of his sons while laying hands on their heads. Moses commissioned Joshua as the next leader of Israel by laying hands on him. And so the practice of laying on of hands always represents in some way the symbolic conferring of something from one person to another person, whether it be blessing or authority or confirmation. In this case, the congregation confers their recognition, blessing, and approval to Barnabas and Saul for the task ahead. May we as a church, may we be ready to confirm God's call in each other's lives when the Lord reveals that to us. Let's be on the lookout for that, to encourage one another in that. Jesus was born to complete a mission that God prepared for him to do from all eternity. Jesus spent nearly 30 years in preparation, allowing the Father to teach him, to lead him, to guide him. And when the moment was right, Jesus approached John the Baptist for baptism. Everyone else was going to John to be baptized for repentance, but Jesus had no sins to repent of. John knew this, and when he said that Jesus should be the one baptizing him, Jesus responded, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, simply put, before Jesus could die for the sins of the human race, he had to identify himself with the human race. He was born fully human, and now Jesus goes into the water as a way to identify himself with every man and woman, you and me included. Baptism is identification. When you are baptized, you publicly identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus was baptized, he publicly identified with all humanity. That's what he was doing, identifying with us. He became like you and me in every way, in every way except for one, except for one. Jesus never sinned. Never spoke a sinful word, never thought a sinful, sinful thought, never did a sinful action, never had a sinful motive in his heart. 
And because Jesus never sinned, and because he was the Son of God, he was able to take upon himself the punishment for sin that each of us rightly and justly deserves. Jesus died on the cross in your place. He rose from the dead to bring you to God. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so the moment you place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you freely receive forgiveness, you're reconciled to God. You freely receive a new life, a life that is now given the power to be pleasing to God, and you receive freely the Holy Spirit. And the Lord begins to prepare you for the service that He will set you aside to do. The Lord delivers you from eternal death and hell, but He doesn't do this only for you. Thank God that salvation is for us individually. Thank God that the Lord does save each of us individually. But it's not just for you. It's for others as well. So that you might go forth and use your gifts and your abilities and your experiences and your skills empowered now by the Holy Spirit to identify with the suffering of others. To go forth and to freely offer them the promise of salvation in Jesus. That same salvation that you freely received. How has the Lord set you apart? What is he calling you to do? How does he desire to use you to identify with others? Even as Jesus identified with us in order to proclaim to explain, to share with them what you have freely received, what you could never earn, what God gave to you as a gift, namely, bringing you to himself through Jesus Christ. How has God been preparing you? How has he set you aside to use your particular skills and abilities, background and experiences in order to proclaim Jesus Christ? Not just in word, but in deed, in both. I'm not saying that he's called you to be an evangelist or a teacher or a pastor. Maybe he has. But he has called you. Does have a calling on your life? Does have a desire for you? Are you praying about that? Are you trying to discern what that is? Have you ever taken time to pray and to fast to seek God for his specific will for you to accomplish? He's got one for you. He's got a ministry for you. He's got a ministry for you. What is that? As we close today, I want you to think about that. What is that ministry that he has for you? Let's pray. Father, you did not just set aside Barnabas and Saul for your purposes. You've set each one of us aside. You have a, a plan, a desire, an intention to use each one of us in a unique way that you have shaped us from before we were born, that you have 
chosen us from before we were born, prepared us, Lord, even from our birth, but most especially from our salvation. You have been preparing us, each individually, to accomplish a certain mission for you in this life. And we don't want to miss that, Father. I don't want my brothers and sisters to miss that. So, Lord, we just ask, whatever that might be, might be something that we never anticipated. Lord, might not be something that's great or grand in the eyes of the world. might not be something that's even noticed except by Jesus. And those things um, are especially valuable because they receive the, the greatest reward in heaven when they will be openly, openly revealed to all to glorify you. So, Father, I ask this morning that the call upon each of our lives, the particular ministry, the ways that you want to use us, would be revealed to each of us more fully, that we might walk in it, that we might help each other to walk in that, that we might encourage each other as the church to all be functioning members of your body, not just here on Sunday morning, but going forth throughout the week as your body that you work through. So, Father, we ask these things. We love you. We give you the glory this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.